Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. If I can't hear the character's voice in my head, literally hear it, then I think, oh, okay, this is going to be a little tougher, you know, because lots of times I'll read something and I just instantly hear their voice. Testing one, two, three. Welcome, listeners, to the first post-Emmys 2020 episode of In the Envelope, the actor's podcast from Backstage. In case you are not aware, the voice you just heard is that of Gene Smart. No relation. (laughs) My name is Jack Smart. If you're a first-time listener, hello. My name is Jack Smart. And I've always wanted to say this about Gene Smart. I've always wanted to interview Gene Smart. I've always wanted to ask her, could we possibly be related? Pretty sure we're not. Uh, pretty sure that's the that was the takeaway because uh, after listening back to this interview where we talk about uh, her family background in Scotland and my family background in Scotland, I'm pretty sure uh, it wouldn't be possible that we come from the same smarts because my family in Scotland is on my mother's side, so not the smarts. Anyway, <laughs> very beside the point because uh, this is a phenomenal interview. I've, we recorded it a while ago. I've been so excited to release it. We released it just in time for the Emmy nominations, which were announced for me, it's today. This is being recorded today, Tuesday, July 28th, 2020. Quite the year for uh, the industry and for award shows, but uh, the Emmys are soldiering on with this uh, nomination of this year's best of the 2019 and 2020 season. Among the nominees is Jean Smart, who is nominated for her work uh, in the supporting actress in a limited series category for Watchmen, which for those of you who may not know, earned the most nominations of any title this year. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel topped the nominations for comedy, followed by uh, Ozark, uh, Netflix, which earned the most nominations for drama. Uh, the list is fascinating. It's a fascinating kind of look at, um, I would say, where we are at this point in time in history. Uh, I have to wonder how much of... Um, quarantine affected what television academy members saw and wanted to nominate. Um, There were quite a a few repeat nominees as usual with the Emmys, but there were also the comedy race, for example, the best comedy race is half returning nominees and half new ones. There's a lot of really exciting actors nominated, including, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out the many recent podcast guests that have been nominated, uh, which include recent guests Darcy Carden, Laura Linney, Billy Crudup, and Mark Duplass, both for The Morning Show, Sarah Snook, uh, amazing, 
and plenty of older guests too. If I mean, we also we've talked to Laverne Cox, we've talked to Ron Cephas Jones, who are both nominated in the guest actor categories. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. and Hank Azaria are nominated for voiceover performance. Tracy Ellis Ross and Anthony Anderson, uh, Betty Gilpin, William Jackson Harper. The list goes on and on. Backstage, if you head over to backstage.com, we have covered a lot of the nominees this year. It is my responsibility every year to kind of compile the list of all of the people who are nominated and where they have content in backstage, be it old or new. And the list is insane this year. We have we really did a great job of covering everyone, mostly the actors, but you know a lot of the people that are now up for Emmys. So you can expect to see more of that in the coming months. The Emmys are taking place on September 20th, but voting does not take place until mid-August. And uh, it's just a very exciting time. So stay tuned also for, of course, exclusive interviews with nominees, but also for soon-to-come discussion episode featuring members of the backstage team, our kind of gut reactions to these nominations, our kind of expertise on the subject. And um, thank you for listening, for continuing to listen. In the Envelope will continue to cover these, these talented individuals so, without further ado, let's get to one of those talented individuals, Jean Smart, no relation, to hear about her acting and career advice. And um, thank you for continuing to tune in through this 2020 Emmy season. I really appreciate it. Hello, In the Envelope listener. If you are a theater lover looking to learn more about Broadway, may I suggest checking out our friends over at The Ensemblist. Their podcast takes you inside the theater with Broadway performers from Town to Hamilton. In their candid 20-minute episodes, the ensemble takes on diversity, Broadway history, and so, so much more. Seriously, check it out. It is terrific. Search for The Ensemblist on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Jean Smart has steadily built a career as an acting legend, from her early days doing theater in Washington to her brilliant work on Designing Women, Overkill, The Eileen Warnos Story, 24, Fargo, and Legion. She's earned a Tony nomination and three Emmy Awards for Frasier and Samantha Who out of nine nominations, including this year for HBO's limited series hit Watchmen, where she plays Lori Blake. Here is the lovely and hilarious Jean Smart. I am so happy to talk to you today uh, on Backstage is in the Envelope podcast, and I have so many questions for you. But first of all, my name is Jack Smart, and you are Jean Smart. <gasps> That's right. That's right. My God, we might be cousins. Oh, my God. I'm really are curious. You, are it, we is your family from Scotland? <laughs> yes. What, what part? Do you know? Um, no, I do not. Oh, if my grandfather listens to this, he's going to kill me. Um, uh, yeah. He's from... Yeah. I've been meaning to kind of look into it. I, I feel like there can't be that many of us. It's not a real common name. Um, no. My my father was first generation. He His oldest sister was born there, and then they moved into the States. Okay. And oh. so I've been there a few times. I love it. But, yeah, we're, yeah. we're from the um, north of Dundee. Okay. Four for Gloms, little, little villages near Gloms. And um, 
Okay. And Dundee is, if you're not familiar, Dundee is north north of Edinburgh. Okay. But uh, how funny, yeah. I've always said jeans. Whenever talking about Gene Smart, I've always said no relation, but you you never know. There might be J Smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met Amy Smart uh, one time. Did you? Oh, Amy Smart. And that's funny. Did you have the same conversation? Well, we did, except that she she immediately told me. She said, "Well, my father was adopted, so so she's an, oh, okay, interesting." It's a great name. I mean, everyone always assumes it's a fake. It's it's I've made it up, but. Now, who would make up a name like that? It's, it's like calling yourself, totally. hi, my name's Jean Beautiful. Nice to meet you. <laughs> like... Yeah, we're not vain. We didn't choose this. Uh, well, as you can understand, I've, I've been just dying to have you on this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, and you've spoken to Backstage before. Remind me, have you? did you ever use Backstage, like maybe in your early days in New York? Oh, gosh, yes. Okay. Yeah, amazing. yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact... The show that probably, I mean, really actually did, started my entire career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I had, I had just moved to New York. I'd been there a few weeks. I was crashing with a, a, a friend from college in her apartment yes. on the Upper West Side and just kind of trying to figure out what to do and not spend all my money. And uh, I remember looking in backstage and there was a, there was an audition for this play off 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 broadway play called last summer at bluefish cove and mm-hmm. actually it was a different play but that's a long story but anyway and i and and it had a lot of women's parts in it and i thought well that well that sounds like a good thing to audition for and plus mm-hmm. <laughs> i based it on if i could find it i went oh i think that's near here i'll go to that one oh, i think i can find that somebody. one it was in a girl's apartment i went oh yeah i think that's not too far from here i'll try that one <laughs> Yeah. And that was my, I, I got my first Broadway show out of it. I got my agent out of it. It was, okay. it was amazing. Yeah. So thank you backstage. Oh, see, I had no idea. That's so excellent. I didn't realize. So you were one of those, you moved from your town to New York without a solid job in place. Like you just had, you moved. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And before that, so it was all, you were born in Seattle. Was acting always the, the dream? Um, not until I was in high school, not until I was a senior okay. in high school. I had, a, I had fortunately, a really uh, good drama teacher in high school, no, mm-hmm. but not until my senior year. And he sort of treated us like, he was kind of hard on us, but he treated us like a little acting oh. troupe. But I was also a cheerleader, which he just hated. He just oh my thought that was appalling. <laughs> but... Um, I mean, and I and I knew that they had. I was also fortunate because I lived in Seattle, and the University of Washington had a really, really, really good uh, BFA program, and I knew that. So I went to school there, and then I got into that program. You did, you had to have had two years of college to get into the programs, and so that's what I did. So I was there okay. for five years, and then there was a lot of professional theater in Seattle. So I just as soon as I got out of school, I started working. Yeah. A lot of regional theater, including, is it true you were still doing regional after you moved to New York, right? Uh, well, sure. Oh, everybody in New York did regional theater. Yeah, mm-hmm. you just live in New York and just fly all over hell and gone. But yes, I when I went to New York, uh, one of my very first jobs, as soon as I got cast in Last Summer at Bluefish Cove, of course, I got cast as Lady Mac in the Scottish play. 
Okay. And I thought, oh, I really want to do that. But mm-hmm. it was in it was in Pittsburgh at the uh, old Carnegie Hall, Pittsburgh Public mm-hmm. Theater. And I thought, oh, gosh, how can I turn that down? But right. I thought I didn't move to New York to do a play in Pittsburgh. So I talked to the director, and it was such a you can only do this when you're, you know, in your late twenties. But I, I did both. I would rehearse the Scottish oh. play three days a week. Jump on a plane, get off, get on the subway, get to the theater just in time to do the Thursday through Sunday schedule of the of Last Summer at Blue Fish Cove, and then I jump on a plane, fly back to Pittsburgh, what? and rehearse for the, It was fantastic. It was, it was fantastic, and it was flying. Yeah. You weren't taking a train. You you were getting there ASAP. Yeah. That's amazing. It reminds me of, um, didn't Cynthia Nixon star in two Broadway shows at the same time and ran back and forth between the theaters? I think she may have. I, I love that. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you, you can get by really for a really long time on that kind of adrenaline when you're young. <laughs> adrenaline. Yeah, totally. It's just, you're so excited that it's, uh, you know, it was great. It was great. And what else do you remember from those early days? Because I, I do feel like for a lot of like, especially theater actors, you moved to New York to try to make it in New York. You're often faced with decisions like that of like, well, do I want to do a tour or do I want to do regional theater? Am I uprooting the, the original plan in New York? Like, right. did you have a vision yeah. for what your life, what you wanted your life to be like? Um, I just wanted to do plays in New York. Um, I, But then, of course, then I went to Atlanta and did a Christopher Durang play and mm-hmm. and I remember my first musical audition. I, I should have immediately gotten myself a, a vocal coach. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I guess I okay. thought I sounded good in the shower, so I would go audition for musicals. Um, unfortunately, and this is my only real regret. The, the man who ran the um, the program at the University of Washington was was fabulous. He his name was Duncan Ross, and he had started the old Vic Theater in London, and he was uh, oh, okay. He was very good, but he had. He did not like American musical theater. Okay. He he kind of looked down on it. And he didn't think it was really legitimate theater. He had kind of started, you know, Mam- uh, not Mammoth. Um, oh God, what's his name? Anyway, and so we all kind of went to New York with our nose in the air about musicals. Gotcha. And so by the time yeah. I ever did a musical, which was years later, it was so much fun. I just thought, oh my God, why didn't <laughs> I pursue this? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my first audition was pretty bad. Yes. Interesting. And and you would have hired a vocal coach if you could go back in time and redo it. Oh, yeah. No, I would have gone after musicals big time. Cool, yeah. cool. And so at what point was the screen work, did screen work become part of the picture in terms of something you wanted and in terms of something that became available? Well, I'd only, I'd, I'd only been in New York uh, about three years, actually a little less than three years. When I my agent got me an audition for a, a TV series that was shooting in LA that Lynn Redgrave was doing, and it was called Teachers Only, so they flew me out there to audition, and they cast me, and so I kind of got here and I just stayed, mm-hmm. and I kind of wish I'd spent more time in New York. This was what year the move to to LA, eighty yeah. three, and you've been there since. Yeah. And I mean, I've gone to New York a couple of times, you know, to do mm-hmm. theater a few times over the years. But I, I kind of wish I'd stayed in New York a little bit longer before. A little more New York, a little more musical theater. <laughs> These are the changes you would make. I mean, you know what? I, I The thing I've learned is, especially as an actor, I think you need to constantly beat yourself up and think, 
why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Why did I do that? Well, and everybody feels this way. Regret is the worst feeling in the world. And you can't, it's so non-productive and so unhealthy. And mm-hmm. all you can do is tell yourself, to, I made choices at the time I made them for a reason, and I'm not going to regret it. And I'm just going to decide that I'm right where I should be. Totally. That, that sounds really saccharine, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that, we kind of like saccharine. If I read that, I go, oh, how advice. annoying. Go eat some <laughs> tofu. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, it's it's true, especially for acting. I mean, looking at your just astonishing resume, I think that I would love to ask you about type and about pigeonholing, because I do think that, especially for for female actors, it is very easy to be cast as one type of, of character and to continue to be cast as that type. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you've sort of avoided that in your work because you've worked a lot in theater, TV, film, and in a lot of different genres too. Yes, no, I, I, I've been very fortunate with that. And and some of it's been conscious decisions and some of it's just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, after designing women, mm-hmm. where I played the sweet, naive, good Baptist Southern girl, hmm. uh, I did a TV movie where I played Eileen Warnos, mm-hmm. who was the first, she had the dubious title of being the first American female serial killer. And I thought, I wonder why they cast me. <laughs> sure. Like, but I was I was glad they did. It was an interesting experience. So has that guided any of your like how do you go about this has likely changed over the course of your career, but how do you go about deciding what to take on, what to say yes to, and what to say no to? Yes, because sometimes you you're making purely a business decision, other times you're making a decision totally from the heart and mm. You know, I have very few regrets about decisions I've made of either things I didn't do or did do. I think I might be in danger of starting to be typecast a little bit since uh, oh, now. Okay. <laughs> since Fargo and Watchmen, uh, my sure. next show. I can see similarities between the next character I'm going to be playing and, uh, <laughs> and some Watchmen character and even the Fargo character a little bit. In a couple of years, <laughs> I'll have to do some crazy fluffy comedy <laughs> so i guess it's true that at any point in one's career you can get typecast i mean it's just a fact of the industry right casting directors very rarely will do that switch of sweet southern bell into murderous serial killer right yeah i i um for whatever reason that has not been a, a real issue for me thank goodness and also too thank god i was never the ingenue because oh. that that would be tough that would be tough if you'd always been the ingenue and then all of a sudden you are not ingenue material anymore. And I was never really the ingenue. I was too right. tall. My voice was too deep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and how much of this was, I assume um, you have a great relationship with your agents. What was that relationship like? Oh gosh. You know, my, my first agent was, God rest her, Judy Shane was her name and she was Southern. And she was so funny and she was so supportive and so great. And she, um, <laughs> when I first did, uh, when I first did an episode of, uh, teachers only, which was my first television gig. And that was with Lynn Redgrave and Norman fell. And, uh, 
it was so weird because I, I, you know, I felt like, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore because I didn't know what, you know, I remember the first night we taped in front of an audience and somebody said, uh, Oh, who's, who's doing the warm up?" And I thought, Oh, "Oh, we're going to do like, what, like a vocal warm up or stretching or something, you know? And, and they said, no, there's a stand-up comedian. He, he warms up the, the audience. Gotcha. I said, I said, you're kidding. He said, no. I said, why? They said, well, it just kind of gets the audience in the mood. I was like, I said, you would never do that if you were doing a comedy in the theater. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. I thought it was so bizarre. And it's sort of like you're, but with a sitcom, it's sort of like you're doing a little one-act play every week which yes. is kind of fun, except that the audience can see you making your exits and your entrances and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And, uh, and then someone said, uh, okay, everybody uh, line up for intros. And I said, what's that? What's and they said, that? well, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to introduce the cast and you're going to go out one by one in front of the audience. Just what I said before the show, you know, it was like, it was just, I thought it was just the odd. It was like introducing a basketball team, you know, and it's center, you know, run out, ready, claps. I thought it was just wild. And so I called Judy, my agent, the next day. And I was telling her all this stuff. And she said, oh, she goes, you poor baby. You really don't know your ass from apple butter, do you? <laughs> I said, no, I don't. That's actually great. I mean, we love hearing about there is often the trajectory of a theater actor that walks on set for the first time. There is a there's a transition there, right? Like what else do you remember about your first onset experience? From this podcast, it really sounds like I've asked a lot of people, it just seems like it's a crash course. You're just thrown into the deep end. It's actually, I think I mean with the sitcom, it's it's a it's a if with a you know a multi-camera show in front of a studio audience is a completely mm-hmm. different animal than, you know, doing a single camera show you know with no audience so in a way like i said it was sort of like doing a little one act play every week Mm -hmm. but those other things were so strange and now i find it difficult i just recently did well not real recently a while ago i did an episode of i don't remember what it was an episode of a show a multi-camera show Mm. and i found because i usually loved having the audience but i found that it was kind of jarring after not having that for so long gotcha. um, and also too i think i think television studio audiences they're kind of they they think that there are certain expectations on them like for instance if somebody says something kind of emotional or heartfelt mm. or something the whole audience goes oh yeah You're thinking oh don't do that why are you doing that or if somebody kisses somebody they go oh you're thinking <laughs> oh this is not this is not good yeah this is weird okay. totally <laughs> feel like you're on a game show or something but it's not the audience's fault they're encouraged no. to do all that stuff you know it is i love this idea that maybe a multi-cam sitcom is a stepping stone to screen work for a theater actor well yeah because i mean screen you know uh, single camera work i mean it's obviously much um working in a smaller way you know you're not having to reach any kind of of course you're mic'd on a multi-camera show you don't really have to project but uh, yeah it's it's a it's an interesting animal (laughs) well and you've probably been asked this before but do you have a process like in your theater training going about creating a character are there certain things you do the same every time regardless of the medium i would like to say yes and make myself sound really professional 
(laughs) (laughs) But truth be told, um, I just go with the script and I just, and I know right away, I know immediately if I'm going to have my work sort of cut out for me, or if this is something that I just immediately, I can, if I can't hear the character's voice in my head, literally hear it, Mm. uh, then I think, oh, okay, this is going to be a little tougher, you know, because, because lots of times I'll read something and I just instantly hear their voice. You kind of hear their voice or their voice voice as your voice. Like for instance, when I did uh, Floyd in Fargo, I actually auditioned for that and I just knew instantly when I, when I read this speech they sent me to do, I knew instantly I could hear her voice with her slight accent and I knew who this woman was. I just knew who she was and I knew exactly what I wanted to do with her. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I came up with this whole backstory of why she was named Floyd. And I never asked the writer until we were done why he named her Floyd. Until you were done. Very cool. Yeah. Do you often do that with the whole backstory? Sometimes. When I was doing 24 uh, and I was playing the first lady, Gregory Itzen, fabulous actor who was playing the president, my husband, uh, he and I had actually done a play together a million years before that. So it was really, really fun to be back with him. And we came up with a whole story about (laughs) our marriage and about a child that that we had lost and that all this whole thing. Wow. And we went to the producer one day. We were proud of ourselves and we were telling him and asking him some questions. And he was just kind of like, uh, oh, that's nice. Okay. Who's was sort of like, okay, go do your little <laughs> actory thing. That was really interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Like there, it almost feels like there is an obligation to match it up with what the writer had intended, but you're saying maybe not always. It's okay for you, the actor, to just invent your own thing if that. I mean, you know, it's thought. whatever. Whatever gets the job done. You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I research is great up to a point, but if okay. then it gets in the way or if it conflicts with the script, then that's not that's not helpful. Which for TV, it often could because there are things you don't know about your character at the beginning that you learn later. Yes, that's probably the hardest. Uh, the, the, the most difficult thing, the difference between doing a series and doing a film is you're doing a film, you know, the beginning, middle and end, which also can have its own problems because you, you, it's hard sometimes to forget what you know, ah. if you understand what I mean. And play the end at the beginning of a film. Exactly. And, or, and also too, because you're shooting everything or so often you're shooting things completely out of order, oh. you know? I was always like going sometimes in certain shows, you just go to the script supervisor and you say, Oh God, wait, did, did this, did that argument happen before right. the, 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 Oh God, was this the, wait, were we at the restaurant? You know. And, uh, mm. but, but with a series and you don't really know where it's going, especially mm. since it, I mean, sometimes they'll give you a vague idea of where it's going. Other times I won't tell you a single thing. And, uh, the thing that I find difficult about that is mm-hmm. that as an actor, you want to be as specific as possible to make your character as real and as interesting as possible. But you're also afraid to marry yourself to something that you might regret or it might not really work for you. And you think, oh, my God, I've already established that. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't change that now. So that's the scary part of, of not knowing. 
where it's going. Totally. But there's advantages to it because then you play it it's more like real life because you don't know what's coming. Ah, totally. you can be more in the moment. Okay. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Ah, okay, interesting. Does all of this also apply to auditions? Like, do you do that same amount of prep? Do you make a whole backstory? Does it depend? Usually you don't have time to do Mm-hmm. A, lot, <laughs> a lot of that kind of thing. No, I, I, I try to just go with my first instinct. I trust my first instincts. I just go whole hog with that. Can I ask, maybe this goes back to what you were saying about the material and how sometimes you have your work cut out for you, but what do you, what do you tend to do when you're stuck or when you encounter a scene or a dialogue or something that isn't quite working? Are there tricks that you pull out in order to kind of get over that hurdle? Well, if it was really something that was hanging me up, you know, I would I would talk to the writer and the director. Um, okay. I, I know that sometimes I have to force myself to not rely on what's comfortable okay. for me. Uh, and, you know, and if I get to some dialogue and I just think that doesn't just, that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem... And I have to stop and question myself and say, well, is it not comfortable for you or is it right. not you know, or natural or is it not natural for that character? Can you find some Amazing. way, especially if the writer's adamant about it, you have to find, is there some way I can find, I can justify uh, that this um, is right for the character, mm-hmm. which is, which is why, you know, you want to work with good writers and good directors because then you can say, okay, I, 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 I don't quite get that, but I, I trust them. So right. I'm going to go for it, you know? Right. Okay. That's so interesting. It's like asking yourself, is this challenging for me in a good way? Or is it challenging exactly. to the point that I got to pull out some tricks and have some conversations? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what of all your roles, like which have really challenged you? Which do you think have pushed you as an actor and added skills to your skill set? See, well, you know, I mean, I guess I always just, I think of the ones that were very satisfying. Um, I mean, Fargo was definitely a high point hmm. um, where I, I felt a sense of freedom, partly because she was very, uh, a very plain, unadorned, hmm. uh, no-nonsense kind of person. So there, there, there was no vanity whatsoever. And I'm mm. I'm vain, so that that <laughs> that took, that took I, I I adjusted to that once once we came up with the hairdo, the hair which, yes, which was just you know I mean it was my idea, but when she, when the hairdresser started doing it, it I, I started to go I started to get a little teary and went oh god oh god <laughs> no vanity you know? yeah and but as soon as we found it the right I went oh there she is. There she is. Wow. There's Floyd. And it, it, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, as an actor, you're always talking about working from the inside out and all of that and finding the emotional mm-hmm. truth. But there's a lot to be said sometimes for working from the outside in. You know, like, for instance, I suppose if you were playing Richard Third and you were trying to find a physicalization of that man who they say supposedly was hunchbacked and, and, and lame, um, mm-hmm. if you moved like that during rehearsals, that would inform your thoughts and feelings. It really would. Yes. Um, it's the same way certain kinds of costumes completely take you to another part of yourself that you don't 
normally tap into, um, especially if it's a period piece or something to rehearse sometimes in costume mm-hmm. or, a, or a facsimile right. of, you know, of your costume. But um, yeah, the, so there's something to be said about wearing certain kinds of clothes and, and mm-hmm. looking in the mirror and seeing that you literally don't look the same and, and that... And, and I give great credit to the wardrobe and hair and makeup people on Fargo right. in particular because they were extremely involved and extremely dedicated. And um, so we, we just worked like a really good team to come up with that look. Um, mm-hmm. So it's safe to say it's not that you're outside in entirely, but it's a combination of inside out and outside in. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it, it can be um, very illuminating sometimes just putting on a certain costume or have yeah. a certain, I mean, I'm kind of going through that right now with this mini series that I've been working on with Kate Winslet, which I hope someday we can finish. I was going to say, is it interrupted? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're about 85% done. Oh, okay. But it's, it's similar. It's a similar experience because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I've got really bad, really, really bad hairdo. And uh, no makeup and, and um, you know, a lot of polyester and sweater vests and, okay. and a real working class Phil- South Philly accent. Uh, the accent is part of the outside in for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And same with Fargo. Yeah. I mean, your wig acting in your one scene in A Simple Favor was a great example of wig <laughs> acting. <laughs> Where I, it's one of those things where I saw the wig before I saw that it was you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I said, we've got to, you know, we've, you know, th- this is not a, you know, a custom made lace front wig. You know, I want the audience to know that this is definitely not her hair, which is why I, I kind of grabbed it and adjusted it at one point in the scene. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> I certainly did. I certainly did. I didn't even know you were going to be in that movie. And then I was like, oh. That, oh. Well, I adore Paul Feig. I always wanted to work with him. And I, we knew each other socially a little bit. And so when he asked me, I said, yes, 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 anything. Yes. <laughs> okay, so Watchmen. How did you get involved in Watchmen? Was that an audition? No. They, uh, I'll be very honest, they had uh, <laughs> been waiting for an answer from another actress. And she kept them okay. waiting and 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 waiting. And she finally said no. And they said, oh, Jesus, uh, when they called me. <laughs> and I think two days later, I was on my way to Atlanta. Oh, wow. Okay. Reading, madly reading the, the book, you know. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So d- you didn't know the source material beforehand? Not a clue. I mean, that's what I think is so amazing about this miniseries is that for viewers, too, you you don't need to have seen the movie or read the book at all. It's It's like catered towards all knowledge levels of Watchmen. And that must be true for you as an actor too. Oh yes. Yes. And then, you know, they gave me a crash course. I went out, I went out for drinks with one of the writers and she really gave me a great crash course in Watchmen lore. Um, Mm. And also too, I I was very fortunate in that uh, my character's first episode, which I think is the third episode. Yes. Well, this series, I'm not sure. It's like a little mini movie. I mean, and even yes. the director said, he said, this is so beautifully written and constructed. You, you, you got so much of her. It wasn't like usually in a, in a, you get a little bits of the character throughout the, 
the right. series, you know, in different scenes and different situations. You got to see her in so many situations and, and, and in so many what well, you get to see so much of her. Um, it was extremely uh, enlightening and helpful mm-hmm. to me to to try to get into her head. You know, and I, I mean, I was, I mean, I just loved, I read that first script, but I just said, I am just, where do I sign? This is <laughs> fantastic, you know, and, and who knew, you know, at this stage of the game, I was going to become an action hero. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It's like, it's like, it's amazing. Between this and Legion, it sounds like this is like, it's never too, it's, sci-fi is, is a, your new genre. Well, not my next one, but. <laughs> uh-huh. And so how would you describe Lori, Lori Blake? Well, she, you know, she, uh, she kind of thinks she's got it all together, but she's obviously got a lot of issues about her past and her parents and her mm. history as a, as a uh, vigilante. And of course, her, her kind of obsession with Dr. Manhattan. She never got mm-hmm. over that. You know, and it's interesting because she, you know, she tells Regina's character, you know, she says, you, you strike me as the kind of person who just doesn't have friends and i thought boy you know <laughs> look at yourself lady you know right. because right. she lives such a solitary existence and here's regina with a husband and kids and <laughs> you know lots of co-workers and here's Lori who goes back to an apartment by herself every night and she's a mouse yeah. to her this big owl and uh has That's a right. closet full of black suits black pantsuits it's kind of sad yeah yeah but like you said these layers are kind of unveiled it's all in that intro episode for sure yeah that episode that that role was a real gift it just was a very satisfying experience and was this did you know the ending was this like a movie or was it like um had you not gotten the scripts for the whole series oh no no i didn't know i didn't know the ending but in this case it was important for you to have the backstory because it's a pre-established character, I suppose. Yes, I had to at least know a little bit about her parents and about obviously her yeah. her um, relationship with John. That's an example of something that you as an actor are not gonna go in and make up a parentage or make up a past. No, no. <laughs> it was uh, uh, the only thing I really asked Damon Lindelof about, who I just think he's just brilliant. Yes. <laughs> Before I said yes, was I said, okay, we need to talk about what's in the, this, the attache case. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I said, oh, is this going to figure prominently in this show? Because, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I have an 11 year old girl. I can't go there, you know. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 don't worry. Nothing's, don't worry. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> Just one scene. But definitely, uh, Probably one of the buzziest scenes from the whole uh, series. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. really funny that that was not, maybe not a consideration, but it gave you pause. This, uh, how should, what should we? Uh, well, depending on what he had it. in mind, I would have maybe had to say no. You know? <laughs> oh, God. Not that my daughter watches me on TV. She doesn't. She, it's, it's kind of, it's, a, I'm kind of lucky actually. She's, my son okay. is 30. My daughter's 11. Yes. Didn't mean for it to be quite that way, but that's how it worked out. And, you know, he's too old to get traumatized by anything his mother does. And she's <laughs> too young to care about even what I'm doing, you know? So she thinks it's right. kind of cool, but she doesn't watch anything I do. And she doesn't really like watching me on okay. things. I think it makes well, her feel kind of weird. You know, she just wants to be yeah. mo- me to be mom. So. 
I mean, <laughs> just to give some context for listeners who maybe have not seen Watchmen, it's this is a spoiler alert, but we are referring to um a uh, giant An adult dildo? toy. Okay. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, you said it. <laughs> I don't know how explicit to get, but for those who maybe are are just tuning in because they haven't seen Watchmen and they just like Gene Smart, they're going to be very confused. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll have to edit out me saying the words "giant blue dildo." But there, there yeah, we go. It was not. Know. It was not. A, it was not a porno show, folks. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Gosh, what a weird show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was actually that that was the idea of one of the female writers. And oh, okay. she she kind of proposed it as a joke in the writer's room. Oh. And Damon went, huh. Okay. <laughs> and she was like, oh really? Okay. And so when the show was all done, he presented it to her as a gift. <laughs> oh, how funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Jean, thank you. This is so great. You you've this is Primo. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Backstage advice. Yeah. Can I ask you some silly, not quite rapid fire, but um, backstagey questions? Okay. Um, do you remember how did you get your SAG card? Was it that um, that first TV show? Um, must have been. Yeah. Teachers only. Teachers only. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. What about equity? Oh yes, I remember that. Uh, okay. I was I was playing Mrs. Cratchit in in uh, uh, Christmas Carol in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Or Mrs. Cat as the uh, cast called me. You know how we always come up with horrible <laughs> names for each other. Yes. Mrs. Cratchit. Oh, Mrs. Cat. Oh. <laughs> okay. Great. Okay. What is one performance that you think every actor should see and why? Film, TV, anything. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to rethink this later, but the first two things that popped in my mind, just because I think they were both wonderful, was Al Pacino in uh, Godfather Part Two was Michael Corleone, okay. and also just because it's, I think, probably my favorite movie, uh, mm. in the sense that I think it's an almost perfect film. It's called Witness, with Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Oh, okay. And everybody in it is brilliant and it is so brilliantly shot and it's got everything you want in a movie. It's got an, to die for love story. It's got scary bad guys. It's got, and it's set in an Amish community. It made you want to run away and be Amish for the summer. You know, I mean, it was mm. just, it is a glorious film and so beautifully done. And Kelly McGillis, everybody in his family, she was absolutely wonderful. That's one of those parts. If I could go back in time and say, if I could have played that part, Mm. I'd be, you know, I'm, I just said, okay, I'm happy. You know, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a scene in there when people ask about nudity and things like that in films, which 99% of the time is absolutely unnecessary. And it's yes. just for titillation. And I believe that it always pulls an audience out of the, out of the film. Mm. I always think that's a mistake because it makes people instantly a little bit uncomfortable, even if they don't think yeah. they are. But there's a scene in there where she's naked from the waist up and she's giving herself a sponge bath. And she looks like a Vermeer painting. (laughs) And and Harrison Ford, who is falling in love with her, she's a young widow. He's falling in love with her and he accidentally walks past the doorway. And he, he immediately looks away and she sort of freezes for a moment. 
And then she just turns and faces him and puts her arms down. And he, ah, every time I think about it, I mean, the look on his face, he looked like he was in pain. And Mm. she was, it, it was just this totally quiet, silent moment. And it was so perfect. It was so necessary and it was so perfect and it was so gorgeous. That is beautiful. Anyway, that's my, that's my, that's my little speech. How do we get into nudity in films? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> after the, after the adult toy discussion. No, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, I was trying to make up for that. It's your fault. Right. <laughs> I really enjoy asking that question. I, I think it's really magical to hear from one actor about why another scene is speaking to them. Oh, that, yeah. was, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, do you have like a worst audition horror story? Oh, God, who doesn't? <laughs> Two spring to mind. One was I was in New York. I was new, wanted to make some money, and I was auditioned for a commercial. It's the last time I ever auditioned for a commercial. And I literally had to be the hind end of a horse costume. No way. Yes, I did. Oh my gosh. And I said, Gene, what are you doing? This is, <laughs> this is after five of years of classical theater training. Yes. I'm going, now I can't do this. Did you bail? Well, I didn't get the job. Oh. <laughs> Although the guy told me, the guy, remember the guy told me, he said, you have one of the, and I think it was because I was just gritting my teeth. He said, he goes, you have one of the best deadpan looks I've ever seen. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, the other one, the other one that leaps to mind, cause it was very destructive in a sense. And I was kicking myself was, um, it was for a Coen brothers movie. They wanted to see oh. me for this part in one of their movies. I don't remember the name of the movie. I should, but I don't. And, uh, my agent who I adore and is very classy guy. And he never tries to push me on anything I don't want to do or talk me out of anything I want to do. He, I mean, he's very respectful of, of that, but he did kind of pressure me and say, you know, cause it was kind of exciting. Oh, the Coen brothers want to meet you. And it's like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. this was years ago, way before Fargo. And, uh, okay. and he wanted me to go in like that the next morning or that afternoon or something. It was just crazy. And I said, I, 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 I I'm not ready. I can't, I can just tell oh. I'm not, I'm not, there in my head. I just can't. And he said, it's, this could go away over the weekend. I'm just telling you it really could. They could cast something, get somebody over the weekend. And I, cause I wanted to wait till Monday. And, but I, I kind of, I weakened and I went, Oh, okay. And I went in and I don't know what was going on with me. Cause normally I, I love meeting new people. I don't, I like auditioning. Um, it's usually mm-hmm. fun. And, but I went in, I have never been less humorous or less charming in my entire life it was agony and i thought i will i will always listen to my instincts after this i will you know Mm. it was just not meant to be yeah it's like when i was offered this this tv series and i i thought i really need to work i don't know (laughs) and i wasn't crazy about it i thought why am i considering this i'm not crazy about it i know that's a luxury i do know that's a luxury well yeah think that way but I, I finally turned it down, and the next day, I got the Fargo audition. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm being rewarded by the universe. There's sometimes the universe, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, great. Jeannie, this is so awesome. Can I ask one last question, which is sort of like we've you've mentioned it, but the elephant in the room here is that we are all kind of on lockdown and quarantine. Yeah. Do you have advice for for actors or for artists or just for people for you know what to what to do or how to cope with this very bizarre situation? Are there things that you as an actor are doing to stay sharp, stay engaged, stay inspired? Well, if I'm going to be really, really honest, yes, please. I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of shocked at how much I'm so thoroughly enjoying okay. not thinking about working and not working, not having to fly anywhere, and not having to have those kinds of conversations all the time. And I'm not talking about this conversation. This is very enjoyable. Okay, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I hesitate to say because I, I feel very fortunate that I'm with my family. Yeah. And our house is big enough that we can kind of all get away from each other if we need to. And we have a, you know, or, you know, we have a good sized yard. Uh, I've been doing massive amounts of gardening and my little vegetable garden, which is just, I'm as happy as a pig in mud. Um, I'm cooking up a storm. I mean, my family yeah. has never eaten better. You know, I'm suddenly I'm just cooking like crazy. Right. But if, if you don't have the luxury of being, with somebody else or having room, you know, to kind of get away, I'd say, you know, then make a list of the books you've always wanted to read. Cause there's nothing mm-hmm. like a, a great book that will take you a million miles away. Oh, that's great. You know? advice. Yeah. I mean, movies too, but I think more so books because mm-hmm. then there's a part of you that'll be looking forward to it the next day. You know, when you find one of those books, we just think, Oh, I can't, I can't wait to get get back to the book. I can't wait to get back to the book. And then you're crushed when it's over totally. and find another one. Yeah. I mean, obviously you want to stay in shape physically and things like that. Try to take mm-hmm. the chance to really pay attention to your health, really mm-hmm. notice what makes you feel relaxed, really notice what makes you feel good. I mean, I'm, I'm noticing a lot of things, you know, about myself and my home, just my, my physical surroundings. I'm thinking, well, I've always taken that for granted. That's mm. I'm going to go sit out on my porch. I never sit out on my porch. You know, things that you just yeah. are always just in too much of a hurry. And again, I know that that's a luxury to not be one of those people who's literally having to worry about, is my business going to sure. be destroyed? Sure. Can I even pay my rent? You know, can I feed my kids? And it's weird because unlike... Say, for instance, when I think back to the Northridge earthquake here in 1994, Mm. which was a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. But once it was over, you know, it was over. You had to deal with the aftermath, but it was over. And you could be Mm. proactive and you could help uh, people who needed help. And you could go out and visit your neighbors. And you could, and I mean, I met neighbors I had never met in all the years we'd lived in the house. Uh, we had, we had friends living with us for a while whose building had been condemned. We were having neighbors over for fried chicken uh, by candlelight because we had at least left our gas turned on. They had turned their mm-hmm. gas off because they said, you know, think twice before you turn your gas off because it may be a very long time before it's turned back on. So we had no electricity, but we had turned, we had still had our gas on. So we were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you could do things, you know, and see people and help people. And you feel kind of helpless. I mean, yes, we can, um, you know, donate to food banks and, and Mm -hmm. things like that, but you can't, you feel a little bit helpless. 
you know, to definitely make things better. I mean, that's but that's that's great advice, though. It, it's just true that these days, what is important to us and what matters to us is is coming into sharp relief, including, I think, yeah, a lot of things that we we were taking for granted before now. Or you just feel like, oh, later, later. I don't have time. I don't yeah. have time. I don't have time. You know, to talk to somebody instead of just giving them this quick text. You know, FaceTime sure. with somebody. Yeah. And and, and I was talking. I was talking to Damon Lindelof the other day about you know the whole theme of masks in in yes. Watchmen. In Watchmen. And yes. the whole and the whole theme of a catastrophe that was created mm-hmm. to unite all of us, to unite wow. the world against a common enemy, to prevent nuclear holocaust. And I thought, wow, if that show was ever prophetic, yeah, you know, you, you've got this world where people are living in the aftermath of this bizarre cataclysmic thing that happened, but it took, but all every, all the countries in the world had to unite against what they thought was this common enemy. Hmm. And, um, maybe that's what we need to learn from this, that, you know, we have to stop bickering with each other and yes. Because we're all in the same boat. I am really fascinated by pop culture that like has a different tone, different context now. Like there's a lot of shows and movies and books and songs that you you know you engage with now, and it feels different in this age of, of quarantine. It is. Yeah. It's just interesting how pop culture is always sort of my frame of reference for like understanding the world. <laughs> yeah, but I still want someone to do a, a version of Tangerine, that old song. But call it quarantine. Uh-huh. But I hear you when you're saying the thing about um notice what the thing about noticing what helps you relax really is I think really good advice. I, I mean I'm I'm personally gonna yeah. kind of use that because it's that's really tricky right now. I think there's a lot of ambient anxiety right now. There, you know what? And it's, it's the not knowing how long it's going to last. I think if totally. someone could give us a, a cold hard date and say on this date everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And everything's going to go back to normal. I think we could put up with anything. Um, yeah. It's the not knowing. Yeah. I, I compare it to people who run marathons. I've oh. never done anything like that, but I understand that they 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 learn how to pace themselves. You know, mm-hmm. at, you know, at mile four, I'm going to adjust my pace. You know, at mile six, I'm going to adjust my breathing. You know, at yeah. mile. 12, I'm going to start doing this and you know, they've got it all, you know, and because they know exactly when it's going to end. Right. Even though they know it's going to be long and really hard, they know exactly when it's going to end. So they get mentally and physically, they, they have it all figured out. But if someone had just said to them, okay, I'm going to fire this gun and say, you know, go and I'll just start <laughs> running and I'll, I'll tell you when to stop. Oh gosh. You would get fatigued and stressed out so much so, faster than if you were yeah. running an actual marathon. That's such a great, yeah. I had not thought of it that way, and it's very true. It's a marathon without an end, yes. But it will end. That's the thing people yes. need to remember. It will end. It will get back to normal, mm. some kind of normalcy. It will. Mm. This too shall mm. pass. There will be a vaccine. There will be treatments. We just have to hang in there. Yeah. Because yeah. people are starting to flip out a little bit. It's a little oh, too soon yeah. to start flipping out, folks. <laughs> a little too soon. 
Well, that's just, that was a brilliant way to, this was such a brilliant way to end a really lovely conversation. Jean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jack. You have to look into the family tree a little bit. Let me see what you found. I will. Yes, I will. Yeah, and if you do 23 and me, if you do 23 and me, yeah. it will show us if we're cousins. That's crazy. Wow. Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> well, now I want to do it. That's a, that's a, it sounds really fun. So. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Well, thank you for all this wonderful advice. This is just lovely. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.